Smith, and this is more than one lesson, episode 103. Very exciting. Um, we don't have a great deal of time, so I will just jump into uh, a couple of announcements, really only one that I can think of, and that is that we now have a Facebook page. We did have a Facebook group. That's still open for the time being, but I will be closing it probably in the next week or two. Uh, so please go over to Facebook and like us. Um, what you can do is you can go to morethanonelesson.com. On the side, there will be a thing that says Facebook. Click on that. That will take you to the page and just uh, click like. And basically, it's a way to get updates more frequently. Um, the group was not really conducive to that, whereas the, the page will be and is. So uh, thanks to everybody who has uh, taken it upon themselves to like us uh, already. Uh, but yeah, that would be very helpful to us if you were to do that. So I think that is it as far as announcements. Um, just a heads up that in a couple of weeks, uh, our co-host Josh is going to be out of town. And so we'll probably be recording with a guest host. I'm not quite sure who it'll be yet, but I'm working on it. So just, uh, just wanted to give everybody an update about that. And speaking of that co-host, he's here with me now. His name is Josh Long. Josh, how you doing? Oh, it's me. I, I didn't think it was going to be me. With all that introduction, I thought maybe it'd be someone else. I don't know. Man, I always hope. I always hope that... Uh, <laughs> That's why you said it so slowly. You were like, maybe by the time yeah. I get into the end Groban? of the sentence. <laughs> Josh Groban, yeah. He has so much stuff to say about uh, the comedy of Steve Coogan. He's very into film. Um, yeah, it's like... Uh, there's an episode of Hannibal recently in which Hannibal talks about uh, how sometimes he will purposely uh, drop a teacup and watch it shatter and that there's a part of him that wishes that it, would, that it could just go back together, but it never does. And in that same way, every time I, I start to introduce you, I, there's, I always hope, I know it's not likely, but I always hope it's going to be somebody else sitting there. There's always a chance. But it's just you. Yeah. Ugh. It's always you. But... Uh, oh. That's okay, everybody. Here's the thing. Here's Some the thing. people say Tyler's always picking on Josh. Tyler clearly hates Josh. Tyler doesn't want Josh to be on the show. Right. That's usually me saying that. Okay. To myself, screaming okay. it usually through tears. Strangely right. enough. Yeah. Sometimes at me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but still in that third person. Right. Tyler doesn't want Josh to be on the show. Yeah. Um. But anyway, and so uh, so I'm sure some people say are these guys even buddies okay josh just shook his head and he's no. right but for the purposes of theater of the mind and, and putting it you know <laughs> as far as our public image then right. it's just i'm a lovable curmudgeon sure, and, sure. and josh is uh the gilligan to my skipper i would right. say 
Um, but uh, in truth, for the record, you just brought up Gilligan's Island, not me. No, I know. It's, it All works. Right. It okay. works very well. How about you're the Laurel to my Hardy? That's fine, too. That works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Would you say you're the Costello to my Abbott? You're not quite as over the top as he is. No. But um, who else do we, Who else is there as far as like comedy duos that um, have that dynamic, that have that classic Smith and Long dynamic? That classic dynamic. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You need all the big ones. Well, I can think of one off the top of my head, and that's uh, Coogan and Bryden. Hey, there you go. Look at that. I was gonna go. I was gonna try and get into it one way, and then I went. An, I went another way uh, by accident. When when you open the door, oh, when you close the door, God open opens window. a window of transitions. Yeah, yeah, right. I think that's, that's, how, that's how it goes. That's in Galatians, I think. Um, so yeah, uh, today we're going to be talking about the trip, directed by Michael Winterbottom. Who directed a, who's directed a number of movies that I really enjoy, including 24-Hour Party People, Trist, uh, Tristram Shandy, a movie I love, uh, A Mighty Heart, and The Killer Inside Me. Uh, a lot of very different films here. Uh, Which one? I don't even remember The Killer Inside Me. Which one is that? It's with Casey Affleck. Okay. Um, and hmm. it is crazy. I believe it's NC-17 for pretty brutal violence and some really? rough uh, sexuality. But it's there are things about it that are wonderful. Hmm. Um, we, I, I considered doing it on this show and we still might at some point. Um, but yeah. yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure yet. So, um, now I'm sure a number of you are wondering, well, wait a second, why are you, why are you talking about the trip? It's not a really well-known movie or anything like that. And the reason is because it resonates with us. But before it resonated with me, because I only finished, uh, I had started it uh, like a year or two ago and I only finished it recently First, it resonated with Josh. It was on his top 10 of that year. Uh, mm-hmm. It is a movie that he really loved. And so when we were talking about possible episodes, that was a suggestion you made. And not unlike there are times when you and I uh, talk about this sort of thing. And then once somebody makes a suggestion, uh, either they themselves or the other person will be like, mm, that's good. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know the trip. So I didn't know if it was a good suggestion or not, but once you locked into it, you said that this that would be a good one, yeah, uh, because of the things that it explores. So, um, so let's. So I'm going to throw it to you. This was your suggestion. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw it to you. Uh, what was it about the trip when you first saw it that really jumped out at you? Well, I liked. Um, we were trying to go through films that have come out recently that we can talk about because while obviously we. We'll talk about any films that we find interesting. We like to have, uh, we like to talk about ones that are recent and more likely maybe that people have seen. Often for our for our main film, and um, also this is this is not a bad pick now too for something current because there's a sequel of sorts that comes out this year or came out this year. I don't know if it's. Uh, I believe it has come out already, at least in the UK. I don't okay. know about in this in the states. So it may or may not come out. It's coming out soon anyway mm-hmm. um, here that that is the same two characters, if you can call them characters. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in a similar sort of sort of situation. So. Um, uh, but, yeah, this was the trip was one of my favorite movies of, of that year. Um, and it was a very simple film. It was one I, I didn't really know much about, but 
um, I was aware of Steve Coogan, and I think I had seen Tristram Shandy by that point. I'm trying to remember which I saw first. I think I had seen Tristram Shandy already. Um, and th- that was a very interesting film because it was kind of it was a little meta, which was kind of fun um, because it's about it's about making a movie about this book. But is it the adaptation? Like, it sets itself up sort of as the adaptation of the book, but also a movie about the adaptation of the book, kind of yeah. at the same time. And in doing so, it winds up being an adaptation of the spirit of the book, right? Which is which is very interesting and made me want to read the book. I haven't I haven't read it, especially because I think, um, I think that's the I don't remember if it was within the movie or if it was outside of the movie that Steve Coogan had the line about the author that. He was postmodern before there was any modern to be post about. Uh, I think that, I believe that is in the film, yes, which I enjoyed a lot. Um, and again, since I'm interested in a lot of postmodern art, I think I think something that fits that category but comes from the 1700s is mm-hmm. something I feel like I ought to have sought out by now, and probably will at some point. But anyway, um, that was that was perhaps my introduction to Michael Winterbottom. I think I've only seen three or four of his films, and. Um, so seeing that combination again of him and Coogan and uh, Rob Brydon um, was something that interested me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tristram Shandy is a film that's that I think is on a bigger scale, certainly on a bigger scale than The Trip. The Trip mm-hmm. is very small and very minimal, um, both in, in style and um, – I guess in the locations, sort of, it, it feels it feels almost documentary no. style, and and it purpose. was a, it was a, a TV series first, and so I, and it feels like that. I think it works right. very well as a movie, yeah. But it do, it certainly does feel like like a travel log type of TV show, right? And um, although strictly speaking, it is not a mockumentary. Like I, I've no, read, there are some some people that uh, describe it as a mockumentary, but it really isn't like it's shot in a, in a verite style, but it is not necessarily that like music comes in. There's things that, uh, cameras really wouldn't capture, right. Uh, in a, in a documentary setting. So yeah. it's just, uh, shot in a very, in a very uh, casual realistic style. Yeah. But it's interesting how close it is. It does seem to documentary because, mm-hmm. um, in many of the, public moments with the two of them it seems like it could be a camera following like you said like a travelogue show mm-hmm. and um uh i guess to further elaborate on that i should go back a little bit and and discuss what the plot is for those who don't know um it again is a simple plot uh, these two actors who are playing themselves steve coogan and rob bryden bryden um take a trip to several high class uh, well respected restaurants uh, th- is it throughout all of England or is it a certain part I think of Northern England? England it's Northern England. Okay. Um, and they're, they're not really critiquing the food necessarily. It's, it's kind of just like a, uh, uh, it's food tourism, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's the basic story. It's them going around to fancy restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, and, some of the, some of the film is about their traveling from place to place. A lot of it uh, revolves around their their relationship um, as friends and actors and coworkers, I guess. Sure. <laughs> um, and 
then a lot of the film is them actually trying foods in different places and responding whether seriously or facetiously. I think mostly facetiously. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the core to the story. So, um, I was leading to something with why you need to know they were going to restaurants and I forgot what it was. Um, well, I, one thing is that, um, this was something that Steve Coogan had been, he's, he's covering it for like a magazine and he was planning on taking this trip with his uh, girlfriend named Misha, but she is, she's American and she's in the United States at that point because they're on a bit of a break. Uh, but he is still committed to taking this trip. And so he talks to a lot of people and eventually arrives at Rob Bryden. Um, and so, one thing is that this trip could have been very romantic. That is, mm-hmm. that is sort of the nature of it and maybe why he agreed to do it in the first place. But now, I mean, you mentioned, you know, it's over dinner. Like every place is kind of like a date. Right. Um, and is, aren't they actually set up for some places where they stay, where they show up and it's like they're sharing a room and it was almost meant to be a romantic. Well, that's the evening. thing is that that was the plan. And then, you know, once it was clear that his that Misha wasn't going, Steve Coogan tried to set it, make sure that his assistants and stuff established it was going to be two rooms and stuff. And the first place they where they arrive, there's been you know somebody dropped the ball and it's mm. the same room and all of that. And then they get a last minute reprieve. But <laughs> but yeah, that's that. And I so I think the idea of like it being and I don't know if this is where you were headed, but it being dinners and hotels like it seems like a honeymoon it seems like the type of trip that i would enjoy going on with my wife but now but imagine if i was instead going with you yeah it would be fun to a point but uh it's just it just wouldn't be the same especially if your being there was a reminder of oh my wife isn't here and she's not here because you know we're on a break or something like that like it would be kind of sad yeah and that's what Bryden kind of tends to be for Coogan for much of the movie is kind of a reminder of uh, the way things could be better. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, uh, it, it, I th- one of the things that I liked about the film was how uh, how I think honest it is. Um, about them as real people. Cause you know, they're not playing, uh, they, they are still acting. So it's not that they are directly playing themselves, but they are playing characters that are very, very similar to them themselves and that have all the same history. I mean, they talk about their actual, you know, real life film careers in the, mm-hmm. in the movie. And, um, but don't, don't hold back from being, kind of uh, from, from showing the bad sides that they both have. Yeah. Uh, specifically with Steve, I think more so with Steve. Um, they, they really delve into the, the issues that he's having and the problems that he's having. And, um, you know, a lot of them that are kind of his own fault. It's never, uh, I don't, I don't feel like the film ever really treats him as a victim of circumstances, even though he might feel that way the character or maybe the actor i think there's i think there is one moment where it might 
it, not so much a victim of circumstance, but just like, yes, this is an unfortunate thing that can, that can happen, which is there are certain types of roles he goes out for, but there's one, there's another actor that just keeps getting those roles mm-hmm. and he would love to get them and be taken a little bit more seriously as an actor, but it's, it just keeps not happening and he's doing what he can do and, but it's just not happening for him. And I think in that moment, the film actually sympathizes with him a great deal, as does Rob. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you could do a lot worse than the level of success Steve Coogan has. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and I think, I don't mean to say that it, there are never any moments where he, you know, where things are out, out of his control. But I think as a whole, it doesn't, it doesn't treat his character as one that it just has a has all these problems because of his you know because he's a victim you know right, it, it right. really it uh holds him responsible for a lot of the things a lot of the bad things in his life and a lot of it's just kind of kind of his outlook or his personality yeah. um which i think is a is a must be a difficult thing for an actor to do when this care especially when this character is so close to the real him yeah like I really wonder how much of the uh, the film has has the feel of a of a very uh, improvisational style. So I kind of wonder how much of the story of the film was really just that these two actors and the director sitting down together and saying, you're just kind of talking about themselves and their lives and their characters and and what would happen and you know, less, a less of a pre-calculated script. Yeah. As I was looking up information, I saw that there was no official writing credit. Yeah. So that should tell you something. Yeah. Um, it, it almost could. And again, I don't know about the actual production, but it feels like it could have been one of those things where they decided what was going to happen in the scene right before they shot it. Yeah. Although, and you know what, here's the thing, the fact that it was for television, who knows, it might be a lot more scattered, but for the film, I think there is a definite theme Certainly a tonal theme throughout that they seem to capture really well. Because something that that has that style to it could easily be all over the place, but it never Mm -hmm. feels that way. It always feels kind of a consistent, uh, it feels like it's following a theme and a story. Yeah. Even though it feels very off the cuff. Yeah, it's it's a film that, um, I mean, ultimately when when I agreed like, okay, yeah, we'll just watch that. I thought, okay, this is going to be an easy one. Uh, Josh already has a lot of stuff to say about it. And so we're, you know, and it's not going to be like a heavy hitting film. Uh, but after watching it, I was so thankful that, uh, that we had picked it because that spurred me to watch it. I probably would have finished it eventually. Um, but in watching it, it dealt so much with things that I relate to, and it was just so genuinely it's I don't think people take it seri- uh, seriously as a film as they should. I yeah. think people view it because, you know, before I saw the film, there were so many clips being leaked on YouTube of like dueling Michael Caines and stuff oh, like yeah. that, that I think people see it primarily as that mm-hmm. and f- I think fail to see it as a really interesting character study yeah specifically of the character of steve coogan i feel like that happens not to distract from the movie but i feel like that happens with a lot of michael winterbottom's films probably yes like i feel like he doesn't get the credit that he should or doesn't have the credibility that he should as a filmmaker Mm because all the ones that i've seen have been fantastic i know i've seen 
this and Tristram Shandy, obviously. And then I saw Trishna, which came out. Oh yeah, I didn't two see that. or three years ago, which was fantastic, and it is, um, it's a modern retelling of Tess of the Durbervilles, or however you say that. Okay. Um, in India, and I thought it was great. I thought the acting was great. I thought the story was great. I, and and I never heard anyone talk about that movie. Like I was surprised that more people were not talking about that movie. Mm-hmm. And then looking through. There's a lot of these movies that I've heard of, but don't know that much about. Well, and it's killer inside me is a very stylized film. And so I think people could point to that and say, uh, this is clearly the director making a lot of choices, but this and Tristram Shandy and even 24 hour party people, Mm. they have a certain one could say shaggy dog quality to them, which they seem kind of scattered and a little random. And so I think if anything, it, it almost appears as though the director isn't making any choices and the thing just mm. kind of got slapped together. But I think in a good way, I think people view that as a positive thing. Like, Oh, you don't, you don't find this tone in movies very often. It's refreshing how random it is. It's like, but it's not random. The director is still making choices. He is the one responsible for this, having this tone. Right. And so, yeah, he's, he's the, ty- I think he's the type of director that when he makes movies that are very clearly Michael Winterbottom films, because this feels like Tristram Shandy in a lot of ways, yeah. Which also kind of feels like Twenty Four Hour Party People. There's a meta quality to it. There's a breaking of the fourth wall often, yeah. And it's just I feel like uh, I feel like people don't give that kind of thing enough credit. Yeah, they're, they're, he definitely shows this kind of consistency that shows that he's no, he knows what he's doing and he's doing it on purpose. You know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's that's all just to say. I feel like more people ought to know about his films. Um. But uh, I, I interrupted from what you were saying. I feel like there was more to say there. Well, I had a few thoughts about just the the film itself. Um, that okay. So you and I a while ago talked about this is the end. Yes, and we talked, or at least I talked about how it felt safer than it should have. Mm-hmm. These these actors sort of sending up their own image and that sort of thing and sending up how uh, their level of fame and all that. Um, and that it seemed like the way they were doing it was actually fairly safe because it was so heightened mm-hmm. that it felt like they weren't really being vulnerable. This, however, you look at Steve Coogan and what he is willing to allow himself to, how he's willing to allow himself to be seen. Yeah. And even Rob Brydon, like Rob Brydon comes off as the more positive guy, but he also comes off as a little annoying at times. And kind of a dunce. Yeah. And so between that and then Steve Coogan coming off as a petty, envious, insecure uh, jerk. Diva kind of. Yeah. Like all of these things. Um, And that he plays it so small at times as opposed to like yelling constantly you know, he could have played it like, okay, I'm going to play the idea of a Hollywood diva. And I'm going to play it so big that people will know I'm playing the an idea. And if I'm mm-hmm. playing that idea, then clearly I'm removed from it. But he plays it so small and so realistic that it seems like, well, this must be what he actually is. Um, now, I don't think so. Or maybe it is. Maybe this is him trying to deal with who he is as a person. And as I said to you, when I first saw the film, I can't think of, of an artist more committed 
to examining how selfish he how selfish and self-centered he is than Steve Coogan between mm-hmm. because between Tristram Shandy and the trip and then even coffee and cigarettes yeah uh <laughs> he he keeps playing a version of Steve Coogan that is just a huge <laughs> self self-satisfied self-centered self everything just jerk yeah uh and I appreciate his willingness to to put himself out there like that um, to the point where part of me feels like, man, if I met Steve Coogan, I bet he'd be a jerk to me. Yeah, like you wonder if he is actually like that. It's hard to know. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the thing. You come away from This is the End, which admittedly is kind of this weird fantasy film, but like you come away from this, from that, and you look at those characters and like, well, I bet they're not like that. You come right. away from this and you think, uh, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that relationship, the relationship between Steve and Rob seems too, too real and too kind of, I don't know, too raw to be yeah. made up. And uh, especially that uh, now I don't know a lot about their particular careers. I know more about, uh, Coogan's and Bryden's. I know very little of Rob Bryden's career outside of the films we've mentioned. Um, yeah, his career does seem to be, and I don't mean this in a negative way, like his seems very, very linked to the UK. Mm-hmm. He seems to have not quite broken out into like an international or at least an American audience, mm-hmm. except when he is connected to Steve Coogan. Right. But I looked at stuff as a function of the trip. I look at stuff, looked at stuff like of Rob Bryan. He's huge. He not maybe not huge, but he's big over there yeah you know i mean he he's like he had like a talk show and Mm -hmm. just sort of a he shows up on panels a lot like he's just he had an actual talk show i believe so because i saw this interview he did with uh, ray winstone which was delightful (laughs) it's kind of funny if he has an act if he had an actual talk talk show whereas steve coogan plays alan partridge a fake stupid talk show host (laughs) and i've I've never seen any alan partridge and i I feel like i would enjoy it i I do too and i'd really like to to find that especially because now some people may know there is a uh, an alan partridge movie coming out this year which looks very funny which i'd like to see but uh that kind of leads into another thing which you haven't talked about too much yet which is that this is a very funny movie Mm -hmm. like they're two talented comedians and as straightforward as the film is and as um difficult as it is at times it's it's full of quotable lines it's full of great funny moments like it's it's a very funny film absolutely and it's the kind of funny that i i mean i I like a lot of different forms of comedy but i'll say this friends making one another laugh and kind of riffing that's not something you run across in movies a lot no you tend to run across run across situational comedy sitcom Mm -hmm. type stuff one could say um whereas when you and i and a bunch of other people get together and make jokes and and go this way and that way with just talking about absurd things um we make ourselves laugh really hard among my most favorite uh little flights of fancy was when we talked about how on TNT, they were just showing the movie Tremors all the time to the point where they kept, they keep preempting episodes of The Closer <laughs> to show Tremors. 
but that there's one guy out there who's a big fan of the closer and every and he gets himself all he just s- keeps hoping yeah he sits himself down he's got his dinner ready he is ready for an episode of the closer this time they can't preempt it they, they can't, can't do be. it and then it says this we'll episode start. of the closer has been, pre- has been preempted and he gets really mad but he sits through tremors because and sure enough they will show the closer afterwards uh but then sometimes it will say previously on the closer and then it will show all of tremors <laughs> which i was like th- this makes no sense to anybody it doesn't make a lot of sense in general but for some reason we laughed hilariously you're laughing now i'm trying not to but just the idea of them doing doing a recap thing and then showing all of the thing that they're recapping but not only showing all of the thing that they're recapping showing all of the thing that was played instead of the thing right. that they're recapping what they should have said was previously during the closer's time slot <laughs> during the slot where you expected to see yeah. the closer um but I think I think it's the Hope Springs Eternal quality where this guy just keeps tuning in. This this week's going to be different. But he's constantly <laughs> furious. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's an example. Um, and then if you listen to a lot of comedy podcasts and stuff, they do this as well. Mm-hmm. But it's something that is not often captured in film. And so, and and frankly, a lot of these conversations seem like something from a podcast, you know. Yeah. Um, but just the way that they just fee they they go into a bit unannounced and then mm-hmm. they each person they just keep contributing to it mm-hmm. to the point where it just it goes on nice and long not necessarily longer than it has to and it's just so refreshing and wonderful because you don't run across it very often the yeah. one one of the ones that i really enjoy is uh, gentlemen to bed you remember that yeah. where Steve Coogan is talking about they're driving past just a beautiful, beautiful countryside. And they talked about how this would be a great place to shoot like a period epic. And Steve Coogan's like, oh, I would love to play like a general where and he goes into a really good commanding voice and he goes, gentlemen to bed for, you know, tomorrow we rise at daybreak or something like that. And then he says, you know, it's like they never it's always daybreak. They never say like 930. <laughs> Like, gentlemen, to bed, for tomorrow we rise at 9.30. And then Rob Ryan goes, ish. He goes, 9.30-ish. And so they just go back and forth, and they just really develop it. And it's just delightful. And then, of course, all of their impression stuff is is a lot yeah. of fun. Um, you know, their dueling Michael Caines are admittedly a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of good... Uh, almost every time they're sitting down to eat, mm-hmm. they do some good kind of riffing about yeah. the food, sometimes making fun of it or the way it's presented. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're funny actors and they know how to play off each other. Now, do you, do you think... I feel like I've heard this criticism before um, that when you see two actors making each other laugh that that takes you out of it enough no uh that doesn't take me out of it at all yeah these are friends and they are comedians they right. will make each other laugh during a conversation where they're where they are both making jokes but not to say that it takes you out and that you wouldn't believe that it's true like it does say in an episode of saturday night live with jimmy fallon or something right um but it's very specific. <laughs> well, he's the one that I know. was always doing that. Or or uh, Carol Burnett with, uh, um, oh, I can't think of his name now, Hedley Lamar. 
Oh, Harvey uh, Corman. Harvey Corman, yeah. yes. Um, so he used to do the same thing. He would always crack. Because um, Tim Conway would always get him. That was a good show. That's some, some good old sketch. There are shows past 1975, Josh. There are, but <laughs> none of them have Tim Conway. Well, some of them do. Some of them have, yes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, that's that's when... I think that's a different thing when the actor's not supposed to be laughing. But when we're when we see it as a real thing, I feel like I've heard the criticism that it somehow becomes less funny when you're seeing the characters laugh at it. Like when a character tells a joke that everyone laughs at, is it less funny? I've also heard people say that when an actor cries that somehow it's not as strong of emotion when then when an actor's like on the edge of crying. Have you ever heard this? I've heard people say this, especially in acting. People talk about things like this. Like when you, if you, if the actors go all the way to say act, laughing or crying, then somehow that detaches the audience and they don't have to laugh or cry at the situation. The laughter I can see the crying. I can go either way on. I do know that for myself, I do tend to respond more to somebody trying not to cry than somebody straight up weeping. Yeah. But sometimes a, an app, a, a weep will, will get me if I feel like it's earned. Yeah. But with laughter, I will say it's, you know what? It's odd. I kind of agree. If you see somebody, especially like if you see somebody in a, in a movie not necessarily like this where somebody's making a joke and then you cuts to somebody else in the group in that group of people laughing it's almost as though the but maybe not not something quite as improvised as the trip like they have given the note that the actor is supposed to laugh and then he does and then it cuts to that person laughing laughing and it seems as though the movie is saying see this is funny whereas you can tell it's organic in the trip right and while it might actually cut some of the comedy i liked it because i think it strengthened the relationship yeah yeah because you can see why these people would actually hang out though they have a bit of a contentious relationship right and and i think that uh, yeah i agree that it definitely helps the movie and i think it's the right decision for this movie especially because their relationship is so strained at times Mm -hmm. um that i think it's it's important for it but i can i can see people not finding it as funny for that reason maybe um i don't know that i would agree but uh but I can see that as a criticism. I just and I guess an interesting it, idea. I guess it goes into why you would watch any movie. Certainly, this is primarily a comedy, but and when okay, it's a comedy, but there's a, something more. I don't mean to say as the say that a movie that is purely comedy is less than, mm. but this is a comedy with a tone that isn't always comedic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has moments of drama, moments of melancholy, and moments of uh, in which it genuinely seems to be exploring friendship. And so if you go into it wanting nothing but laughs, then yes, anything that takes away from that laugh, even if it's contributing to something else, you will see as a negative. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, I, I feel like it's best to just take the movie as it is and and try to embrace what it's trying to do mm-hmm. as opposed to just saying, well, I was promised laughs wall to wall <laughs> and that's what I'm going to get. 
and Steve Coogan just laughed at what Rob Brydon did, and that has taken me out of it. I'm all do the laughing here. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's my job. So, but it's it's worth it's worth uh, mentioning because it certainly it it only happens maybe four times in the movie, and every yeah. time it does, I do take note of it. And yeah. anytime I feel like anytime you consciously take note of something, you might actually you're not enveloped in the reality of it. You're you're saying ah. Look at that. Yeah. It's weird. Part of it must be the expectation because I know when I watch, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is is the outtakes from the British office. Mm. Almost all of it is when uh, Ricky Gervais starts laughing, often at himself. Yes, his um, scream laugh. Yeah. But those are really funny. Like watching those is very entertaining to me. And I wonder if it's just the context of this is something that's not supposed to happen. Yeah, this actor's not supposed to laugh, but then then he does. And, yeah. know, that's weird. I think um, it fits better with the trip just because of the nature of the movie being made. Like it, it does, and and in those moments, the characters do know that they're being funny because they're trying to be funny. So it's not as if it's a it's a situation where the character shouldn't know that they're being funny, mm. which a lot of comedy is based on that. Somebody doing something that's funny without knowing that it's yeah. funny. Um, so obviously, in in those kind of situations, it, w- it would undercut that, but. Since they're both comedians, they're trying to make each other laugh uh, in these moments. It's organic. It makes sense. So, uh, anyway. Um, Yeah. uh, Did you... Was there anything else particular that you liked about the film? I, I, we didn't talk too much about the acting, but I, that's something that I enjoyed a lot. I feel like they have a good chemistry and they're fun to watch together. Oh, absolutely. Very much so. Um, I do think... Yeah, it's it's interesting because they are playing actors named after themselves. Uh, we feel like we're I feel like instinctively we feel like we're not watching performances. But we are. We are watching Rob Brydon play a version of Rob Brydon who is kind of duncey, kind of oblivious obnoxious at times but uh, generally good-hearted rob bryden could be every bit as pessimistic and self-centered as the character of steve coogan and we <laughs> wouldn't know like it's a very naturalistic performance and chances are they're they're merely expound expanding on something that they already are but i don't know yeah you know and even and people often say that it's very hard to play yourself and in this case they're playing I mean, they're playing somebody with their, their name, but also somebody that if you were to watch this, these people, these guys need to be recognizable as people that could actually exist in our reality, not even a version of our reality. Right. Um, so yeah, both of them are turning in really great performances. And I think Coogan, especially Rob Ryden plays the part that he needs to play and he does it very well and believably, Mm. but like Steve Coogan has to play a lot of different a lot of different notes like whatever wherever drama whatever drama there is in the film is a function of him like he's yeah. definitely the lead and rob bryden is that's supporting yeah that's what i was about to say it is it is much more from his perspective so i i would agree that he is the lead and so we got to see a little bit more of his um of his personal moments of kind of his inner thoughts um and a lot of that's revolved around the tension that he's having with the girlfriend mm-hmm. Misha, you said is the name. Yeah. Um, a lot of it goes around that and these feelings about his career, like yeah. you mentioned about feeling that he can't get this certain type of role. He's always kind of pigeonholed as a, as a certain 
type of role. Yeah. Um, which makes me wonder what, if that is at all close to his real experience of an actor, how he feels, his real experience as an actor, how he feels about things like this film. Um, cause he's still playing a funny character, but he's getting to play himself and he's getting to play something a little bit deeper. Yeah. So I can't imagine that this is a role that an actor doesn't enjoy for both of them. Like, I don't know. It seems, it seems a very, I think they would enjoy it, but I think maybe thinking in terms of career, I can't imagine they think, Oh, like somebody, some agent or something or some producer watches the trip and says, Oh, they were really good in the trip. I'm going to cast them in this other thing. Mm-hmm. If anything, it'll just be, okay, Michael Winterbottom is making a trip sequel. <laughs> that is the end. Um, because, because the acting is effortless. I feel like it doesn't necessarily, I don't think anybody it, it's the acting is invisible. I feel like nobody watches it and says, Oh, look at the range. Clearly this person can play, uh, this type of role that I previously thought they couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's okay. I, I think, you know, I think that's, that makes the film better. It's not supposed to be, uh, it's not supposed to be a real, although it kind of <laughs> is for Rob Ryden and his impressions, including his ridiculous Al Pacino. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> do I remember correctly that he's not that great at an American accent either? Am I mixing him up with someone else? Uh, he's not great in American accent. He's not. He doesn't do a bad Dustin Hoffman. Okay. Because but Dustin Hoffman is a very specific type of yeah diction, especially if you're doing like 1970s like yeah, yeah. you know Kramer versus Kramer Dustin Hoffman yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, yeah, he's not great with an American accent, not great with a, uh, with a New York Al Pacino accent. I'll say that, but, but I mean, some of his other stuff, I mean, his his Michael Caine is good. His Sean Connery is really good. Mm-hmm. His Roger Moore is amazing. Oh, Both yeah. of them do Roger Moore pretty well. He does a good Hopkins and I really enjoy his Hugh Grant mm. because Hugh Grant's one of those people that he does stammer a lot. You know, he does have a certain cadence, but I don't think of him as being somebody that you can do an impression of. Uh-huh. And then you hear somebody do it and you think <laughs> I was way off. This guy's apparently nothing but mannerisms, <laughs> which is what a good impression will do. Yeah. You suddenly realize, oh, apparently everybody has something. Mm-hmm. But, um, but so I'm trying to think if there's anything else that really jumped out at me uh, from an artistic point of view. I mean, I just found it to be overall just a very engaging, very funny, very at times sad and satisfying film. I yeah. I mean, there are times when I was very invested in what the characters were doing. I mean, in many ways, it's every bit as engaging as the movie Sideways, which is a much more – I love the film, but like it's it's – the characters are much more obviously characters. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think the conflicts are a little more obvious. Too. Yeah. Um, but because it's that type of thing, you approach it in a conventional movie way. And in that sense, I think it's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I think because the trip is this meta type of thing, I think we're more inclined to look at it only in that way. But as a movie, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I'll be honest, like when you put it on your top 10, uh, that year for BP, I remember thinking like, okay, well, I'm sure the movie's good, but seriously, mm-hmm. but frankly, had I seen it, it probably would have been pretty close to making my top 10, if not being in there. I think it's one of those ones that surprises you. I think you, you don't, you expect it 
to be one thing, and I, I think you don't expect there to be as much to it as there is. Yeah. Um, but and, I should have known better because it's it's Michael Winterbottom, and it's 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 basically the team that made Tristram Shandy, which meta yeah. though it is, actually ha- is surprisingly touching at times. Yeah. And and yeah, maybe I I should have known better as well. I kind of was expecting like, oh, this will just be a fun, yeah, you know, kind of a goofy thing. Because I tend to, I think, oftentimes when I just want to want to watch a movie, I'll lean more towards comedy. I think than drama. Yeah, comedy or action usually for me. Yeah. Um. So I wasn't expecting a lot out of it, but I think I got I got a lot more than I was expecting. So if you, if it's a film that you haven't seen, it's definitely one to to check out i think you'll be pleasantly surprised i'd be intrigued to watch the show now because i haven't yeah, seen me too. it and is this I, I don't know is the movie taken from like the, the movie is not cut up from pieces of the show is it, it is. is it really okay yes so they took this tv show and cut it to a a solid i mean it's it's like an hour and 50 minutes so it's it's longer than one would assume from something like this but when you realize they have a, a lot of not usable footage that they actually used <laughs> uh you know f- they have a lot of footage to go from then it makes sense that it'll be a little bit longer um but i'm intrigued to watch the show now and see which one works better for me because frankly yeah. it works so well as a film right that i it, don't know it makes me <laughs> It makes me feel like I haven't actually seen it, kind of, you know, right. like, well, this is part of it, but there's a larger piece. No. That's why, like, I've never seen the theatrical version of Fanny and Alexander, mm. but I've seen twice. Have I seen the the TV version? Whatever. Yeah. But that's one of those ones that they cut it down to a movie, and I'm sure it's a very good movie, but when it's made from a bigger piece... I almost feel like I, I almost, I feel this weird responsibility. Like I have to seek out the bigger piece. So now, you know, knowing that specifically about the trip, I feel like I need to find a way to do that. Although in this case it's, yeah, I go, I go back and forth because part of me doesn't want to see the show because I found the film so satisfying and right. I feel like, well now the film just feels incomplete, mm-hmm. but the film certainly doesn't feel incomplete yeah. right now. Now I just feel like the show is it, it's superfluous, <laughs> even though it, that's what it started as. Yeah. Part of me is like, well, what's it going to do? Just do more of this? Yeah. Uh, two hours is more than enough for me to get the impact. <laughs> Wonder, um, do you know how much of the show there is? I don't. I mean, I think it was just one episode per day. Um, and so I think for it was 10 only years. Like, well, I think it's I think it's like six or seven episodes. Okay. So it's just one of those kind of a standard British series. So it might not be a whole lot longer than. Probably not. No. Yeah. But. Uh, but, but yeah, I, release, I am in, what was that? But you can't release like a, I mean, say if it's six 30 minute episodes, if they're 30 minutes, mm-hmm. you, I assume they're, yeah, you're probably not going to go see a three hour long comedy about people eating food. I might, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, that's not as marketable. People don't go see the long comedies. Well, people don't make long comedies anymore. Well, no, I mean, some do, some make them like the, like Judd Apatow three hours though. Three Did hours, no, get that like close Two like two fifteen sometimes really? like funny people, but everybody which, talks about how over long they are. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. People still do it. It's just not advisable. <laughs> um, so my question for you is as we were going through, uh, movies that we could talk about on the show, uh, and you hit the trip, you didn't 
immediately moved beyond it. Now, of course, now that I've seen it, I, I understand why. But what was it? You know, and it's not merely. This isn't an instance where we're merely talking about movies we find interesting. These are these are movies. I'm now moving us into the thematic portion. Um, you know, these are films that hit us on a thematic level. Yeah. And the trip, not merely because it was in your top ten, but also to the extent that you thought it would make for a good episode of More Than One Lesson, noted Christian podcast, <laughs> noted only by me. Noted award-nominated. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> I wasn't going to. True though it may be, five-time <laughs> award-nominated. Um, never going to win. But uh, Always a bridesmaid. Oh, absolutely. Bridesmaid is a pretty long comedy. Um, I haven't seen it. I think you'd like it. It's good stuff. I think I would. I should see it. Um, but... Uh, so what was it about this film that seen, that struck you in such a way as this is something that could be discussed on our Christian podcast? Not to imply that it's not a that it's not like an anti-Christian film, but like <laughs> what is it about this film? What is it exploring that made you think it would it would work well? Well, I felt like there is a uh, one of the things that really resonated with me in the film was the uh, what the film has to say about success and striving for success and especially in the entertainment industry how that success the idea of success is often coupled with competition um, that's I don't would you say that's the main theme of the film I don't know I don't know that I would I feel like there's a lot going on it's hard to say I feel like the idea of there is a lot going on the idea of success being and needing to be the most successful needing to be the best one and that leading to rivalry competition but also deriving Mm self-worth from that to the extent that you know you can be as successful as possible in your specific field or your specific genre or whatever like you've cornered the market on that one thing but but unless you are as well known as this other person you're not happy Mm -hmm. and you won't be happy until you literally are the best one or the one that everybody knows or the most well respected it's it's really kind of that uh like what is it the carrot and the stick the thing that's just always dangled in front of you and you keep moving towards it Mm -hmm. um and you just and if it was only you it's still that's bad enough but of course you it can lead to sort of either to yourself or to the other person sort of denigrating somebody else so that they feel like they're doing worse than they are so that you can feel like you're doing better than you are which this film has a lot of yeah yeah and i think specifically the Steve Coogan character, his approach to success and his struggles with being successful, I feel like resonated a lot with me. Um, uh, because I don't know, he, he is dealing with a lot of those things that you said where he's never, it's never really good enough. Mm-hmm. It always seems like there, uh, it always seems like somebody else has something that he wants. Yeah. You know, um, and he, fi- he finds kind of a perverse 
joy too, I think in, uh, in breaking down Rob yeah. because that somehow that, that moves him up a notch, you know, that makes him feel like he, he's better than Rob at least. And if yeah. Rob recognizes that, then, you know, at least within their, within their relationship and wherever it is they go, he is the winner and can feel a little bit more like he's, he's that successful person. But he, even in that, you see that that doesn't make him happy because he's, um, again, it's been a couple of years since I've saw it, seen it. I, I feel like I remember that he, there's a particular roles he's trying to get during it or he's fine. Or he finds something out about one or, well, he gets offered a, a role in, uh, a series in America and it okay. would be, it would, it could possibly be good for him, but it also means that he would have to sacrifice. Like he has, he does have children in the UK and it would mean yeah. sacrificing seeing them on a regular basis and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, in regards to his relationship with Rob, one thing that I find interesting is it's not merely that he has to assert I'm more successful than you or even that I'm a better actor than you, which is what they do both comedically and otherwise. Um, I mean, with their dueling Michael Caines, for example, <laughs> I mean, each one is saying what the other person is doing wrong. But Rob is much more at ease with where his career is and mm-hmm. he seems much happier with it. Yeah. And that more than anything seems to get to Steve. Right. That how can I, it's like, I am doing better than this guy and yet he's more content than I am. Right. So how can he, it be that, yeah. that he is more content when I should be the one who's more content because I'm doing better than he is. Yeah. And so he seems to not merely assert that he is better, but he also seems to want Rob to be less happy because yeah. if this guy feels worse about his career, then it means I'm doing something right. Yeah. He would be happier, or at least he believes he would be happier if Rob were more jealous of him. Yes. Which is, is never the case in the film, which just creates this weird, uh, source of frustration for him. Yeah. Um, and so my question to you, my friend, all right. Um, is, you know, you, you observe, you've observed that certainly in the entertainment industry, this attitude is not, unheard of Mm -hmm. that's me being nice um (laughs) one could say it's rampant but uh is that a thing that you have ever felt that you look at other people who they they might be striving to do the same thing as you they might not rob and steve are not going for the same roles Mm -hmm. at all but um but they're doing something and they're having more success or maybe they're not having more success but they're more content with where they are and you're frustrated at their contentment and thinking, what? How is this? <laughs> no. Or uh, do you ever feel that feeling like, how is this even happening? This other person who's my age, maybe even younger, they're doing better than I am or they're doing as well as I am, you know, and you use that either as a motivator to like work harder. But even in that working harder, there's just this element of frustration in it. Like, is that a thing Mm -hmm. that you have dealt with or are currently dealing with? I don't think, I don't think I've dealt with being angry at other people's contentment so much, but I, I mean, I think it's pretty normal in the entertainment industry to be frustrated with, with other people's success. Not, not, not really just the idea that they even are successful, but 
the kind of why not me thing. Mm-hmm. And especially because in the entertainment industry, it is, it is a lot focused on younger people, you know, like yeah. there are, you know, there are a lot, there are a lot of people that are out there beginning to do what I want to do at the higher levels that are, that are younger than me or that are my age or something like that, you know? And so it's like, how did they get there? (laughs) You want to say like, that's not fair, which doesn't really make any sense when, (laughs) when it comes down to it. But, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a, a big frustration. So it's, uh, I like that the way I like the way that this film deals with that. And, um, kind of shows Steve just spinning his wheels in yeah. in being upset about this, and that uh, n- even knowing that it's a that it's a normal and it's a common frustration. That uh, first of all, that it's not helping him any, which should be obvious, but isn't. Right. Um, and then the idea that he is at he is at a level where I think a lot of people who might want to be at that same level someday would say he should be happy. Right. Like I'm, I'm, I pursued acting for a time, but I'm not really pursuing acting anymore. But I think if I were, if I were, I would be able to look at him and say, he's, he's done a bunch of great work. He gets consistent work. He has great roles. I think he's very funny. I think, uh, I know that I enjoy him and I know there are a lot of people that do. So, Mm you're good. Like you're there. That's where you should be. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't feel that way. And you hear stories all the time of people who, uh, achieve some notable level of success, but are still very unhappy or very depressed. Um, and feeling like they're, they're still not successful there or it's still not enough. Yeah. And the thing is, it, it astounds me. Uh, there are people, who would look at Steve Coogan, including the character, sorry, the character of Steve Coogan, obviously um, that would look at him and say, don't you realize what all the stuff you have going for you? Mm-hmm. What, how can you possibly feel so insecure and, you know, worthless, mm-hmm. maybe not worthless, but at least worth less. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but what's ironic is that people could be saying that about us could look at, you know, for example, you and I are, are both married and there could be, in fact, I know that there are, are single guys who, when they, when they hear me talking about like, eh, things haven't been going great in my marriage lately or whatever, you know, people who will say, um, something I wish I had that problem, you know? Mm. Um, and in doing so essentially saying you, you don't know how lucky you are. You're taking this thing for granted and all that. Like we Mm. all, I think, I think a lot of people do that. A lot of people are oblivious to how they have been fortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, because we always feel like we could be more fortunate and there always is going to be somebody that has been more fortunate in some way, shape or form, whether it because be because like good genes or more money or more talent or just more opportunity, Mm -hmm. like stuff has fallen in their lap and it didn't fall into yours, you know? Um, and you, 
become blind to the opportunities you've had or the, the ways in which you're blessed. And when we say you, uh, I am talking about me like this. One of the reasons this resonated so much with me is just this, like, for example, over a battleship pretension, um, the show is going very well. It's going better than it ever has. And it's, and it's poised to do even better. Um, which is very exciting for me, but I am also very aware that, you know, there are times when we don't show up even in the iTunes top 200. There are other podcasts that do other, you know, one could say amateur or rather non-professional movie podcasts that do way better than Battleship Pretension and have not been around as long. Mm. And I get angry. It doesn't matter that BP is doing very well, doing better than it ever has. It doesn't matter that it's the type of show I want to do. It doesn't matter that it has opened the door for me to get to know people that were heroes of mine since childhood. None of that matters. What only matters is, well, this show's doing better. Even And I don't even take into account, yeah, well, that's a review-based show. People tune in week to week to find out what these people think about the latest movie as opposed to the rather academic topics that David and I discuss. I don't take any of that into account. All I know is they're doing better and they shouldn't be. Mm. I wish I were m- more like them. Meanwhile, the show has been so rewarding for me personally yeah. that I could be very content with where I am right now, certainly working towards, you know, being more successful or whatever, but there's just something about comparing, especially I think maybe in the artistic world where there's, I feel like in almost any other business, because there's not as much interpretation or analysis or creativity involved. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm sure people still get promoted over somebody else, but uh, somebody may be more deserving or whatever. Um, so I know there's still professional jealousies and stuff, but I feel like it's much more tangible. Like if you put in the work and you put in the time, you will be rewarded. Whereas here there's no, in Hollywood, there's no guarantee. There's plenty of people who like, I mean, look at all the celebrities that have gone from a list down to B and C list in not that much time. Yeah. Like it's, it's the petty industry and, um, the, one of the reasons for that is because every you have to get every new job. Yeah. You know, it's not, you don't have these jobs that you're at for five years and you're another one for eight years and then you're another one for six years. You know, it's, it's, you're at a job for maybe a few days and then you get another job and then you got to keep getting new jobs and every new job has to be a competition. Like Mm -hmm. every single one you're up against other people. So, um, and I think sometimes, I think maybe some people outside of the entertainment industry don't understand that. I think we take it for granted here sometimes. But if if you're not aware of that, imagine how stressful job interviews are when you don't have a job. Uh, now imagine that you have to do that uh, several times a month. Yeah. Um, th- and for your entire life. Like that's your career is having to go to interviews over and over again. And my first thought there is like, well, then you get good at get, getting uh, or giving interviews or going to interviews, but so does everybody else in the industry. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not like you, it gives you an edge. It's like being a salesman. I yeah. mean, that is maybe the most stressful job in my, I mean, obviously there's cop and uh, okay. W- aside from jobs where you could potentially die or get maimed aside from that, as far as just from a professional and maybe emotional standpoint, it seems like salesman is the most stressful thing because you're only as good as we've seen from movies like Glengarry Glen Ross, which incidentally was a proposed companion film for this episode. Um, 
but there's also a wonderful documentary called Salesman. Have you ever seen it? No, I want to see it. The, it the Maisels one, right? What was that? The Maisels. Wait. I think, yeah, I think they did it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's old, right? Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. 60s. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, wonderful, but it's, you're only really as good as your last few sales, hmm. you know? And in the same way, like, artistically, you're only as good as the last project you worked on. Yeah. And if you, I mean, anybody falls prey to it. Like, if you, if I'm reading somebody's IMDb and I see they haven't worked in three years, I just think, oh, hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Or an actor can be, can do a great performance in a movie that's terrible and people can see that and be like, oh, they were in such and such a movie. Oh, and there's, there was a movie that was admittedly small, but it also wasn't that good. And I think it was called, oh, I think like Bad City or something like that. It has, no, not, not a great cast, but there's an actor named Austin Pendleton. Do you know who that is? Name rings a bell. You know him if you saw him. He looks like Joe Lieberman. Um, <laughs> okay, but uh, and he was in the Muppet movie and uh, that kind of thing. No, the the old one. Oh, like the original Muppet movie. Yeah, he was oh. like Doc Hopper's like uh, assistant or something. Oh yeah, like yeah. That. Okay, yeah. But um, but he played a crime boss. That little you know this little Weasley guy played a crime boss in this movie Bad City, and he's amazing. Mm. He's amazing. <laughs> if the movie were higher profile, which is to say, had any profile at all, mm. like that is an Oscar nomination worthy performance, hmm. and no one will ever see it. Yeah, it's it's. I feel kind of bad for him, but at the same time, maybe the fact that it was so small kind of affords him the opportunity to go big and go crazy. But also if the movie were big enough, he probably wouldn't have been cast in that part in the first place. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's, it's give and take, but yeah, it's, it is a very Hollywood art in general, but Hollywood very specifically, it can be a very craven industry Mm -hmm. and one that is based very much on status. So it certainly does make sense that Steve Coogan would think this way because mm-hmm. you can't to a certain extent you have to yeah and to a certain extent that might be why he's been on paper more successful than rob exactly exactly the character of rob he's he loves his wife he loves his kid he's he seems very thankful with the success that he's had there's a there's a a, a sequence that i just think is amazing uh, so Rob Brydon does this voice called the, uh, the little man in the box where he just does a voice. I can't even begin to mimic it, but he's able to do something with his vocal cords that makes it makes a voice that is very small and it admittedly does sound like it's in a box. <laughs> so he calls it the little man in the box and it's pretty amazing to behold. <laughs> and it's a thing that people know him uh, you know, know him from know about him. Um, and he gets a certain degree of fame as a function of that. And there's a scene where he talks, he's talking to Steve and he said, you know, he goes, who would have thought that something as dumb as that, that dumb little party game, uh, parlor trick or whatever, um, would get me, would, bring me as much success like he there's a real humility in that as opposed to yes i'm glad people finally realized how brilliant my little man in a box <laughs> routine is um like he seems genuinely astounded and steve is like yeah well what can you do and later on you see him alone in his bathroom looking in the mirror trying to do the little man in the box <laughs> and in that moment it's meant to be kind of funny 
but it's also, I think, kind of pathetic. Yeah. And in that moment, I want to jump into the movie and I want to hug him <laughs> and say, it's really okay that it's you can't okay. do this. You like, don't have to be able to do this. Yeah. Y- you can do so many things. You don't have to do this thing. Mm. And it's just, it, that resonated with me so much mm. because literally there are people who feel like maybe if I could do this thing mm-hmm. or something like it, maybe that's what's holding me back. That'll maybe, give me what I want. Yeah. And I know that that's something that has resonated with me. There are things that I am able to do and things that I'm good at. By the way, it has taken me a lot to get to the point where I can say that, that there are things I am good at. Would you like me to specify? No, I won't, because I feel like that's prideful for me to do. Um, But uh, there are things I'm good at and things I'm not good at. There are probably things I'm not good at that I could be good at if I tried. Hmm. Um, But part of me feels like, some people are measured by what they have. Some people are measured by um, what they have done. I measure people and myself by abilities. If somebody is able to do a lot of things, a lot of different things, uh, I just think, okay, so, all right, so I'm worth less than they are in the long run. Like, they can be depended on to do a lot of things. And I clearly cannot. I can do this and this. That serves no purpose in the long run, so I serve no purpose. And in that moment, when Steve literally feels like he doesn't verbalize this, but it's clear he just feels like, I I should be able to do this. Why can't I do this? And I just felt so bad for him, you know? And it's, yeah, I don't know. I felt like that scene just spoke volumes about what the tone of the film is. Yeah. But, um, so we should move on. Was there, you know, and I've got a number of quotes and Bible verses and stuff like that. Um, and I think some of them I will, I will read, but, uh, but yeah, um, let's see here. Yeah. I think I'll read this before we get into the companion film. Okay. One is a quote that I've heard many times and it is largely pretty widely attributed to uh, Gore Vidal which is every time a friend succeeds, I die a little man. Oh man. (laughs) Uh, I first heard that in high school and I thought, wow, whoever came up with that quote gets it. (laughs) Um, here's a quote by Lance Armstrong who admittedly maybe is not, uh, shouldn't many people seem to think shouldn't be quoted so much anymore, but, uh, but you know, uh, wisdom is wisdom. Anyone who imagines they can work alone winds up surrounded by nothing but rivals without companions. The fact is no one ascends alone. And I love that. Um, because more than anything, that is, that is what I get from the Steve Coogan character. He seems very lonely. Yeah. Um, not merely romantically, but also... I mean, he spends just as much time on the phone with his agents as he does with his girlfriend. Yeah. There's and he's def- not really getting anything out of anybody. Yeah. There's definitely a sense that the reason his uh, his personal relationships are not as strong as they maybe could be or not as rewarding as maybe they could be to him is, is because of his his career. And, it, and it, it makes you wonder, and I don't think this is really put out overtly in the film, but this idea of 
from a career standpoint, it certainly is a Hollywood mindset of what can you do for me? What can this person do for me? Right. And if, which is to say, what can they do to further my career? And if the answer is nothing, people tend to think, all right, well then why am I spending time with you? Now, of course, they could do a great deal for you on a personal level. They could at least provide you with companionship or whatever, but you just say, all right, well, it's, I don't have, I'm committed to my career. I am married to my career or whatever you want to say. And I don't have the time to hang out with people that aren't going to help me. Yeah. And that's why at the end, Rob Bryden goes home to his wife and child and loves them and hugs them. And Steve goes home to his admittedly much nicer home yeah. over, you know, overlooking uh, the city mm-hmm. and is so very, very alone. All alone. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so here is a, okay. So I won't read that just yet. So the companion film, you and I are kind of, uh, struggling to to think of one but where we eventually landed was uh christopher nolan's the prestige which yes listener i know i know i already did an episode about that (laughs) over three years ago i know they're already repeating themselves here on more than one lesson but, seriously but you know what that episode was missing what's that josh long yes there wasn't that's what it any was missing. of that so since we've agreed on that let's move on yeah and talk about how much better this one is so here's how the prestige is like gilligan's island oh boy oh man okay oh boy and now the joke is over yeah. Thank you for going into your Rob Bryden character. I really enjoy it. Um, but, uh, yeah. And what's interesting, one of the reasons why I was actually okay with, uh, going with the, the prestige is because that was when I was doing my three or four episode. I don't even remember series on movies about art and what mm-hmm. I was actually talking about, uh, with at the time guest Jason Eakin, what, what we were talking about was, uh, uh, like artistic, uh, sensibility and uh, artistic integrity versus uh, audience expectation and audience engagement and stuff like that because each magician in the prestige represents a different thing um, and they're, each one of them approaches their magic with a different sensibility and it winds up being a nice little metaphor for, for that kind of thing. Uh, you know, the, the artist that does stuff only for themselves which makes which makes for real can make for really great art that nobody cares about and that ultimately is kind of selfish and self-indulgent or somebody who only ever thinks in terms of giving the audience what they want which shows a certain consideration for the audience but in the end they're not doing anything for the audience anyway it's an episode that i like and that i'm very proud of you can go back and listen to that it's episode 30 or 40 something um i should have looked that up sorry um (laughs) But yeah, uh, for some reason, and I can't even immediately call to mind what it was about the prestige that struck me as a possibility here, except that these two magicians are constantly going back and forth, each one wanting to be considered the best or at the very least better than the other one. Mm -hmm. And I think what they fail to recognize is that first off, 
if these guys ever wanted to work together, it would be the best magic show in the history of the world. <laughs> like one guy's showmanship and regards for the audience, regard for the audience and the other guys like uncompromising commitment to doing a good trick. Now, admittedly the both, the competition does make both of them better in the fields in which, in the aspects that they are weak in. Um, but they, that happens for one could say the wrong reasons. They are obsessed with, with beating the other person. And that obsession drives them to the point where both people, both guys are fairly miserable and actually they make those around them miserable. Yeah. Um, not unlike Steve Coogan does with, I'd say his girlfriend, like it's never, it's never clear why they are taking a break. But when you actually see the, the man that Steve Coogan is, Mm -hmm. you realize, okay, I could see this guy being work difficult. Yeah. From a romantic standpoint. And the Um, two magicians in the prestige are certainly difficult. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Characters to deal with. Um, and so there are a few lines that, uh, that I wanted to talk about because it's film also very much about obsession. Um, so there's a scene where, uh, Nikola Tesla played by David Bowie, which is, <laughs> that's one of my favorite casting choices yeah. ever. He is very good in it. Oh yeah. He's yeah. great. And it's just like, it just, it makes too much sense. Um, but, uh, one subplot in the film is that Nikola Tesla is in a, is, in a constant competition with Thomas Edison mm-hmm. and Edison is winning. Yeah. Um, which was true. Absolutely. Well, everybody look up Thomas Edison. <laughs> he admittedly was responsible for a lot of the, a lot, not all of the things that, uh, that we, that have made modern life so, uh, possible, but he was also rough, kind of a terrible person, kind of a terrible person. And there are things that he is credited with uh, creating that he did not. Yeah. Um, for example, movies, <laughs> but, uh, we can move on from there. So, uh, Tesla is talking to Angier played by Hugh Jackman and Tesla says, I can recognize an, an obsession. No good will come of it. Angier says, why haven't good, hasn't good come of your obsessions. And Tesla says, well, at first, but I followed them too long. I'm their slave. And one day they'll, one day they'll choose to destroy me. And Angier says, if you understand an obsession, then you know you won't change my mind. And I feel like, I mean, you could call it obsession, you could call it drive, you could call it whatever, but that that seems like Steve Coogan's character, just obsessed with getting roles that he's not getting, obsessed with maybe getting an Oscar, obsessed with status, with being considered, being... Because he, at one point in the film, he does say that he is brilliant in like the work that he does. Now <laughs> mm-hmm. he says it in kind of a defensive way, which means he may not totally believe it, but he certainly does have confidence in himself. But it's not enough. Other people need to know. Like he needs to realize all of his potential, and have everybody recognize that he has done so, mm-hmm. and that he has done better than every yeah. than anybody else mm-hmm. could have given the same opportunity. That is a tall order. <laughs> Is it so much to ask to want everybody to like you for everything that you've done? Oh, geez. Well, <laughs> you put it that way. Now I'm much more personally convicted than I expected to be. Um, I was talking about Steve Coogan. 
Um, and that's the thing. I think maybe some, I think probably there are some artists out there and some directors and actors that have achieved what he is striving to achieve. Um, w- whether it be with their whole career or with a specific performance or a specific film, um, where you watch, you know, uh, off the top of my head, I'd say like apocalypse now. I mean, people could look at that and look at Francis Ford Coppola, who incidentally has never done anything as good or as a- ambitious since one from the heart being close, but n- not that even, not even that close. Um, but people could look at Apocalypse Now and say, well, that's – unless I can do that, then what's the point of doing anything? Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't get to – first off, like he drove everyone insane, <laughs> including himself probably. And I, and even he wasn't really happy with yeah. it. But it's such an engaging piece of art, but that's uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, and so uh, – but yeah, just this – this obsession, this drive, it just makes everybody so miserable. There's no contentment there. And it creates, it can create enemies out of friends. Um, I will, okay, we're going to, we're going to engage in a, in a bit, a bit of acting here ourselves. Uh, Theater of the mind. Uh, Exactly. I'm not going to do an accent though. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't. Okay. Because I can't do, because it would have to be an accent like you have to do their accent, yeah. which I don't think I can do off the top of my head. I, I'm I not could, good at impressions. Yeah, I can do a passable Brando, but that's about it. I can't remember exactly what Rob's voice sounds like without it in front of me. Yeah, just you can do it as his Pacino. <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> project journalist. It just sounds so ridiculous. Okay. So here's okay. We may not read all of these, but I took the time to um, to uh, transcribe some exchanges that uh, Rob and Steve have. Uh, so they're sitting at a table, and Rob has gone about doing a number of impressions. And Steve says, "I think anyone over forty who amuses themselves by doing impressions needs to take a long, hard look in the mirror." Well, broad street journalists have described my impressions as stunningly accurate. Well. They're wrong, <laughs> which is, by the way, the end of that exchange, I believe, <laughs> just him very definitively saying they're not stunningly accurate. Um, and it is interesting, actually, now that I look at this, that he says they need to take a long, hard look in the mirror. And then, of course, later There's on the in the scene film, in the mirror, later, he's looking yeah. in the mirror. Uh, OK, so there is a scene where uh, Steve is giving Rob acting advice. And Rob says, don't tell me how to act. I bloody should do why because sometimes you tend to sort of crank it up a bit whereas you are widely regarded as the king of understatement and then that leads to a wonderful bit in which they act like a james bond villain (laughs) come come now mr bond surely you drive as much pleasure from killing as i do that's the line and they both do wonders with it including the (laughs) the point where they're they're basically turning a prop they're turning their um they're like a wine glass into a prop and having the character say it just as he's about to take a drink <laughs> and then right. they don't time it out well. And then they interrupt the line as they're drinking <laughs> and it's just delightful. Um, so, okay. Uh, here's, here's an exchange between Steve and Rob and that's the thing as they get going, like the, the further it goes, the more pointed these exchanges become and so, and sometimes they have kind of an air of genuine general needling but there's some stuff going on 
underneath, especially as you see like how insecure Steve can get, um, that like, Oh, there's probably something going on here. Either he believes it or he's trying to get Rob to believe these things. So Steve says it's difficult once you achieve greatness to match that. I imagine it is. Yeah. And you'll always imagine because you'll probably not have that to contend with, but that's not a problem for me. Why? Well, I'd rather be me than you. I'd rather have these moments of genius than a lifetime of mediocrity. My career is not mediocre. Yeah. So yeah, (laughs) Steve calling his career mediocre. (laughs) Um, And he might be saying it in kind of a nudging way, the way friends do. In fact, he seems to try to be saying it like that. But and he probably doesn't actually believe that Rob Brydon's career is mediocre. Mm -hmm. But I think he wants Rob to be less satisfied with it. Yeah. Um, Like we were talking about. Right. And so when I say that this turns enemies into uh, friends, like into not enemies, but rivals, just it's, you know, I've said it, I believe I've said it on Twitter, so I'm comfortable saying it here, um, that my, my friends are not aware that they are running a race with me, uh, which is unfortunate because, in my opinion, they're winning. Uh, that is a feeling that I get a lot. And so I will sometimes take a, uh, a slightly um, – antagonistic sounds almost too extreme. But I will sometimes take a certain antagonistic stance towards people because I feel like, all right, if I give an inch, then they're going to take it. But they don't know. They don't know they're in this competition. Or maybe they do. I don't know. That'd be, that would terrify me if they, if they are thinking what I'm thinking, if they're like, yeah, I'm really, I'm really doing way, I'm doing way better than Tyler. He's never going to catch up. Um, and it's, and it has made me quite miserable, uh, at times. Like there are times when I, I look at other people and I, uh, usually other guys, I tend not to have this with, uh, with women. I'm not in, in competition with, with women cause, uh, you know, it's got different standards for for each other um also i don't know any oh shoot that's not true i do know i do know a female film critic that is doing very well and that i am uh, a little envious of. <laughs> oh, um, so uh so equal opportunity envy is what i really try to embrace Good. with my life Good. um but yeah it could be career it could be marriage like if i think somebody else is doing better in their marriage and i've been married longer than anybody uh, anybody in the world exactly which i think speaks poorly of marriage and the institution (laughs) of marriage these days that at almost nine years i've been married longer than anybody everyone else is bailing um yeah i guess there's a trend but um yeah like out here out in los angeles i i've been married longer than anybody else i know and so if i feel like my marriage isn't doing as well as somebody else who's maybe only been married four years Part of me is like, okay, I'm failing. Something's, something's got to happen here. And it's just, I, I keep using the word, but it's true. It, it becomes quite miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing. By the end of the prestige and uh, the trip, you wind up with characters that are miserable mm-hmm. or dead. That's also a thing. Yeah. Which um, is pretty miserable. Well, maybe. I don't know. I mean, if you believe that. From my uh, experience. Fair enough. All right. Um, I've never enjoyed it. And you've been, and you've, you've nearly drowned it like eight, drowned like eight times. Tons of times. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, and so I, I feel like we should probably start to start wrapping up. But mm. one of the things that I wanted to mention is that I mean, ultimately, okay, so so I'll throw it to you. And this is a pretty big thing to throw to you. So uh, if you are not quite prepared to answer it, um, that's fine. Uh, So what have we been talking about for the last few minutes? Like if you were to sum up, I mean, we've been using words like rivalry and competition and all that sort of thing and self-worth. If you were to sum it up in just a, a sentence or two, like what are we talking about in, in your view? I think we're we're talking about the pressure that we put on ourselves, not just we personally, but I think most people, um, that you you are not worth anything unless you can achieve X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And for uh, Hugh Jackman, for for the character of Angier in uh, the Prestige, it's for figuring out how that's this one trick works yeah um for steve coogan it's it's like we said being that being the star that everyone everywhere respects for everything that he does yes um and i think i want to say probably all of us definitely most of us have something like that that Mm -hmm. we think this is something that i should achieve and when i achieve this that's when I'm, I'll be where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And so, and that leads to a question when you, when we say where, where I'm supposed to be, what do you think people mean when they say that? I think, I think we tend to think of fulfillment that way. Like Mm -hmm. fulfillment is when you get to the place where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Which, which immediately puts you at a disadvantage of you're already, you're not where you're supposed to be. Yeah. You have to get there. How do you get there? What do you do? to make that happen. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the way, again, most people look at life and which makes it, uh, much more difficult all around. And you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah. Fulfillment. One could say contentment, mm-hmm. um, happy, uh, for me where I usually want to arrive is acceptable. I am mm-hmm. now acceptable because mm-hmm. I have whatever mm-hmm. I've, succeeded in this thing or another thing like whatever it is i mean it all it all comes to like this i have an image of somebody like like breathing a sigh of relief but almost in the sense of like they've been holding their breath for a long time and they can finally just be like ah. like that's whether so like you feel fulfilled you feel content you feel approved of and accepted like that is in my that's in my mind what it looks like is just having this burden lifted from your shoulders and now you can finally rest and relax um and i think a lot of people view that as as a place to arrive as opposed to an attitude and a mindset mm. that you can have basically anywhere. Yeah. That's not to say be complacent and it's not to say, uh, you know, don't push yourself to either be better or to achieve more, but that, you know, probably at any given point in your life, you're doing better than you were. 
that's not always true. Some people, you know, things go bad and they and they're doing much worse, but there's almost always a way to see that that things could be worse, but also that your self-worth and your acceptability or your fulfillment is not tied to things going your way. Mm-hmm. Um, because so many things, you know, so many things are out of our control yeah. anyway. I mean, you know, you were talking about it, that you, you go into an audition and there's only so much you can, you can do your best, but in the yeah. end they have to cast you Yeah, from one job to the next, you know, you don't get, unless you're working like on a TV show, uh, you're not cast for something that will take years, you yeah. know? Um, so, and there's a really wonderful image in the trip that I feel like speaks to fulfillment, like our fulfillment undercut by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene where Rob and Steve are walking along this, uh, nat- like these cliffs, these beautiful cliffs. And, and Steve is explaining however he knows i don't know but he's explaining how these cliffs were formed you know billions of years before and like talking about different mineral deposits and stuff like that and it's just it's incredibly boring um and then rob says like hey shush hey hang on i just want to enjoy this and then steve says well i'm trying to help you enjoy it by telling you how this happened (laughs) and rob says that's fine but just shush for a moment so that we can take all of this in and then steve feels a personal slight he says mm-hmm. you're just jealous because i know all of this and you just <laughs> don't want to be and you don't um but then later on in fact the exact next scene which i think maybe hangs too much of a lantern on it but it still thematically works really well where Steve hikes to the top of the cliffs and sees this gorgeous view. And he genuinely seems awe inspired at that moment. And then this old man walks up who's, who's very polite and friendly and, and he seems to kind of share a moment with Steve before he says, you know how, how this was made. Right. And Steve goes, Oh yeah. He goes, I know all about these mineral deposits and stuff. And the guy says, yes, you see what happened was, and he starts going through all this stuff and Steve's like, yep, absolutely. Uh, and he just says all this and it's clear in that and he winds up leaving. Uh, and the guy just keeps talking. Uh, and it becomes clear in that moment. He want like he has been hit by how amazing this is. And it's bigger than how it came to be. It's bigger than any small explanation. Mm -hmm. It's bigger than constantly analyzing. Yeah. Uh, and this guy by, getting to all the nitty gritty has actually ruined the experience for him. And in that same way, I feel like we can at any point in our lives, we can look at where we've arrived or I'll get to the Christian part in a moment. Um, or who, you know, who loves us, who cares about us? Like, and we ruin it for ourselves by like getting into really minutiae about, well, yes, but this and that, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's not as though Steve Coogan gets up to the top and says, yes, this is great, but it could be better. That would be a little too obvious, <laughs> but I feel like it's a really wonderful metaphor for how he is feeling inside. Yeah. Um, robbing your, like robbing yourself of contentment and like you said, fulfillment. Yeah. And it, I find that interesting too, because it kind of, I feel like it speaks to the whole idea of, uh, the, the food that they're eating. Mm-hmm. They're 
kind of analyzing it and you know he's there to review it yeah ostensibly um, right um but that takes the enjoyment out of it sometimes yeah. and um it's a, in this in the similar way he yeah. takes the enjoyment out of um the natural beauty that's in the cliffs the same way they they're kind of sucking the enjoyability some of the some of the restaurants even are sucking the enjoyability out of the food and when you look at it i mean like never mind just general status and how well known uh steve coogan is he has gotten the opportunity to play some pretty amazing characters and there are actors that go their entire career never getting to play a character they love yeah they're successful and they do well but they never get to do this amazing thing. A, a character actor just passed away named James Rebhorn, who was great. He was a nice utility player. They would always put him in and he would always deliver. Sometimes the character, there was more to the character, sometimes a little bit less. I'm not sure if he ever was like a true supporting character, much less a lead. So I don't think his, I don't think he ever was allowed an arc. I don't think he, I think he did some TV and maybe he was allowed to do more there. But in film, he was never really allowed an arc. He was never really given like great scenes. He did. He had some stuff in Scotland, PA, but like compared to like a Paul Giamatti or other character actors of that, of that nature. um, One could say that his career was not as fulfilling as it could be. Um, now he's still incre- he was still incredibly successful and he was great at everything he did to the point where when he passed away a lot of people both critics and other actors said this guy was a pro who did the best with what he was given and and elevated it but nonetheless there are actors who never get the opportunities from an artistic standpoint to do what Steve Coogan has done yeah. but he can't even allow allow himself to enjoy that he has gotten to play characters and work with directors and be in movies that that could be artistically fulfilling because he's he's obsessed with the business part of it yeah which is like the worst way which is like the easiest way to to ruin (laughs) movies for yourself i think Yeah. yeah um but yeah and so what we are talking about is you know contentment and finding finding your worth in something else uh josh where do you think we should find our our worth you know um i don't know you don't know no all right i got a theory or two Oh, I thought. Oh, but you, you know what? You go right ahead. No, I was going to say. I think that's it. Then we're we're done. Okay, right? there's All no right. solution. Yes. Sorry about that, everyone. Yeah. See you um, next week. <laughs> yeah. Tune in next week when we talk about <laughs> Million Dollar Baby, um, that upbeat film. Um. Yeah. So okay. Uh, there are a number of uh, Bible verses here, and uh, that will lead us into uh, one last quote. So, okay, Luke nine forty six through 50. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. And I do, I find it, first off, I love that the disciples who are quite literally 
in the same physical space as Jesus and are hearing his words directly, they still have arguments about who's the greatest. That, as you and I have talked about before, that keeps me from being overly condemning of myself. (laughs) Because, you know, I mean, I... Obviously, I can read the Bible and I can pray, but like I'm not in the same physical space as Jesus. Sometimes we act as though, well, surely if we were to live in Jesus' then times, then we would get it. Then we would get it, but clearly not. People are people, no matter where they are, no matter how small. It's from Horton. Here's a who. Yes, it is. Um, is that the Bible somewhere? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> a parable, so. right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, but this, so it addresses that they're consider, concerned with who's going to be the greatest. And then he just says, yeah, the, I, I, go the, I go the opposite way. I say, if you're willing to humble yourself and acknowledge that what does greatness even mean, then you will really understand what greatness is. Um, let's go with another verse. This is Philippians 2, 1 through 4. There might be a typo in here or two. So keep that in mind. Josh, I'm going to throw to you. All right. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Okay. So... This this basically talks about how if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit. I mean, this is just saying like almost as a baseline, like if you are if you are encouraged at all by the fact that God has said he accepts you and loves you, then you will not hopefully or you can actively fight against this idea that you are not worth anything if you have not achieved these things over here. Mm. And you will then, and and when you achieve that level of humility and understanding, then you're not going to be so, you won't have such rivalries and you're actually able to work with other people. You know, Rob Brydon and, and Steve Coogan, I'm not sure if I'd say they're at their best when they're working together, but they certainly seem to get one another Mm -hmm. uh, artistically. And the character of these guys uh, never seem to understand that, or at least Steve doesn't. Yeah. Um, And so, and the same in the prestige, like these guys, if they were to combine their sensibilities, then they would have a a really wonderful act. Mm -hmm. And so, but they don't. Because to focus on status and to focus on what you don't have, ultimately that is to focus on yourself. And, you know, it sucks to say what I'm about to say, especially if if the listener is somebody that deals with this as I do. It is still pride and it is still self-centeredness to look at yourself and come up wanting. We, I think we look at pride and say, if you look at yourself and think, I'm the best guy in the room and everyone should realize it. Like that, we say, that is obviously pride. We get that one. Uh, but it is pride nonetheless. Like it's, it's basically looking at yourself first and always. It doesn't really matter what you come away with. It could be positive or negative. Um, if you're looking at yourself first, you are self-focused and you will look at other people as rivals. 
you will look at other people and say, look at all the stuff they have and they don't even know it. Like that is there's a there's a bitterness and a resentment that that comes about from that, because that's the thing. If the person does know it and says, wow, I've been really blessed, not unlike the way Rob Brydon says, would you ever have thought that this dumb little thing voice that i do would take off so well Mm -hmm. like even if they did acknowledge it do you really think that's going to be enough to be like oh well they get it okay that's why i I won't feel the sense of rivalry with them anymore (laughs) like you'll you'll just find something else like that is pride and so if you're like me you hear that and you think okay one more thing to hate myself for you don't have to hate yourself and I will try to have this be a loving admo- uh, admonishment, admonition. I think admonishment's correct. Okay. Um, which is stop thinking of yourself. We all do it. We're predisposed to doing it. There's nothing particularly wrong with you for doing it. You're not worse than other people because you think you are worse than other people. You are just as loved. You are worth just as much. The thing that I always go to, like you could be, you could have no arms, no legs, be blind and deaf and have no ability to speak. You literally are, one could say, useless to the world and you are as loved and you are worth as much as say the president of the United States, arguably the most powerful man in the world you are as loved and as and worth as much to God as that. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at those two extremes and realize that God's love fills the gap in between, yeah. then surely I'll give a personal example with my buddy Josh here, as I've said to, to him and, but maybe not to you. Like I tend to, there are things that I, I basically envy all my friends. Josh is not the only person. <laughs> basically, if you're a friend, uh, there are probably three things that I wish that you have that I wish I had. Um, uh, usually with abilities, but like, uh, uh, Josh has a tremendous athletic ability and I wish I had that. Admittedly, I also hate all things athletics. And so Josh loves athletics. I wish I had that. Like it's, it goes, it can go really deep when, when I'm looking to hate myself. And so, but that's the thing. And so because I don't have these things, I view myself as worth less than Josh. I could go through all my friends, but none of them are sitting right here. Um, and so, but that's the thing looking at that, at that, and it, and it might actually be true that in the world, in the eyes of the world, I am worth less than you or than another person. And then in the eyes of the world, somebody else might be worth less than me. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing. If, if God's love can span this unfortunate soul with no senses and mm-hmm. no arms or legs and the president, like if God's love spans that, then certainly it and, and, and acceptance, mm-hmm. um, equally equally then it can certainly span the probably pretty small gap between josh and myself Mm. um and between you listener and whoever it is you feel like you are chasing um and by and nine times out of ten the person we're chasing may not actually exist (laughs) um but uh so and so that's the thing i would encourage you to recognize that you are loved that you are accepted and that you are forgiven and you are worthwhile 
in the eyes of God. And when that happens, you will stop thinking so much of yourself. You will stop weighing things constantly. And you will actually probably start thinking of other people as well. Um, So I have uh, a verse and then a quote. The verse is Isaiah 5.8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Like clearly this is somebody who is only concerned with status and picking mm-hmm. things up until you finally until you wind up very much like Steve at the end alone in his apartment yeah. surveying the city full of people who know who he is mm-hmm. and there he is all alone and so I will go with this I will end with this quote from William Arthur Ward who I unfortunately had not heard of but apparently is a, a pretty noted uh, Christian thinker from uh, a while back uh, blessed is he who has learned to admire but not envy to follow but not imitate, to praise but not flatter, and to lead but not manipulate. That is the difference between finding your worth in God and finding your worth in the world because all of those other things are about you wanting these other, wanting what other people have and finding your worth in those things. Um, so we should, probably, we should probably end. The episode is now getting to be as long as the film. Um, are, is there anything that you, you know, would like to add here at the end? Like anything, you know, for example, I know that for myself, when I say, Hey, just try to find your worth in God. That's something I have a hard time doing. I I often have a hard time putting these ideas into practical, Mm -hmm. uh, effect. Um, is this, first off, is this a thing, a thing that you sometimes struggle with? And if, if it isn't, or even if it is, like, how do you deal with it as far as taking something from an idea to, pra- you know, a practical application? Yeah, I feel like the the most important thing in in getting that into practical application is getting to a point where it's something that you can actually believe for yourself, because it's easy to say something or to hear somebody else say something and for it to not actually mean something. So um, that takes a lot of personal work. I think that takes uh, study, that takes examining your own feelings, and I think um, that's the kind of thing that changes this from being something that you've heard to something that you believe. And I I think, obviously, I think prayer helps, and I think talking with other people about it helps, God included in other people. Absolutely, and I remember... uh Nathan Potter, who was recently on the show, he once uh, used a term that I have since heard, uh, and it's the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself. Now, mm. uh, what the, that can mean any number of things. What that means for me is fighting for myself on behalf of God. Like, I will throw up roadblocks, I will throw up excuses, I will throw all these things up to kind of cause myself to stumble, and basically being almost kind of aggressive with myself, like literally in the sense that if, you know, if somebody was, you know, just crapping on Josh right now, like just really tearing into him, my instinct would be to say, Hey, you can't say that Josh is this, 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 and this. And so, you know, when I, I will bring up notion of spiritual warfare, like, 
when Satan attacks us with our own feelings of worthlessness, like we have the authority and I would say we are encouraged to speak the truth and speak it aggressively as a way of saying, no, that's not true. And so like defend yourself the way that you would defend a good friend of yours if somebody was going after them. Yeah. Um, and I know that one thing that I've, that I've really tried to do and it's, this doesn't work for everything, but, um, it's imagining God sitting there. It's not unlike the scene in goodwill hunting, um, where, uh, Robin Williams keeps saying it's not your fault, but that's not the phrase. The phrase is, I don't care. Um, and it's basically me explaining all the reasons why God shouldn't value me and should value someone else. And every reason I say, God says, I don't care. Obviously, I mean, of course, you don't want to make it seem like he doesn't care about me, but it's like, I don't care that your podcast could be doing better and isn't. Yeah. I don't care that you ha- that you don't have a career in film criticism. I don't care that you can't play sports. Mm-hmm. I don't care this, this, this. All the things that you give for me to not love you as much as I do, I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that has helped me. Um, and, you know, I-, I think it's probably going to be different for everybody. Um, but yeah, just talking to other people, certainly praying about it, going to the Bible. Cause that's the thing As I was looking up some of these verses, like there was a, I was encouraged by a lot of these, um, like the Bible, as I've said before, people tend to, even Christians tend to approach it as kind of a, a irrelevant to either our current culture or our emotional state. And it is uh, not if you just go looking for answers, you will actually probably find them. So anyway, okay, we will end there. Um, Josh, thank you so much for picking this movie. It was great. Yeah. I love it. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah, I'm glad we could talk about it. So, okay, everybody, uh, just a reminder to go to the Facebook page and like us. And let's see if you have any questions or comments you can email me tyler at more than one lesson.com or josh josh at more than one lesson.com you can follow me on twitter at more lessons you can follow josh at the josh long at the josh long and i think that is probably about it i have been a guest on a number of other podcasts lately uh including post-show recaps talking about um the top 10 superhero movies of all time i was recently on this is our design talking about the latest episode of hannibal I was on the Podcasters Roundtable talking about vulnerability in podcasting. And I was on a podcast called Out Now discussing The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, it's not that good, by the way. Um, so, yeah, uh, that was not – I didn't plan that. It's just a lot of previous uh, <laughs> commitments came about in like one week, and I did not think that – I did not think that through. Um, but anyway, so um, – so yeah, you can find those. And, uh, in the meantime, as I said, next week we'll be talking about, uh, Clint Eastwood's million dollar baby, the best picture winner for the year 2004, 10 years ago now, which is crazy. Yep. So, okay. Uh, thank you all for listening, Josh. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time.